Welcome to the All-American Chapel Protestant Service Podcast. This week's sermon will be given by Chaplain Matt Worstel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for all of your many blessings. I thank you for allowing us to talk with you right now. We don't want to ever take this conversation with you for granted. We thank you for the nation that we live in. And for all of those who serve you and serve our country. And we thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be a part of your ministry through the giving of our tithes and our offerings. And we ask, Lord, that you would use these tithes and offerings that we're about to give in just a moment for the upbuilding of your kingdom. And Lord, I thank you for discipling us, for showing us how to follow you and how to speak to you. And you've shown us this. By teaching us to pray, and now we want to pray as you taught us by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to All-American Chapel. My name is uh, Chaplain Matt Worstel. I'm the, uh, the battalion chaplain for the 2504 Parachute Infantry Regiment. Chaplain Miller, who, uh, who preached a couple of weeks ago, he's my brigade chaplain, so that's kind of where all that fits in. Um, I got to tell you, I'm really excited, a little bit nervous, but really excited to preach to you today. Um, so Wednesday, we had a training exercise that, that took us into Thursday morning, and, and I just saw my battalion commander's here, so he's got to plug his ears on this, but as soon as we were released, right, maybe a couple of minutes before, I started driving to Nashville, Tennessee, right, on no sleep, uh, to get down to see some buddies from college, and up until about 15 hours ago, I was still in Nashville. Um, so when I say I'm excited to be here, I mean that. I think I'm the only one in the history of the 82nd Airborne Division to willingly want to come back to Fort Bragg on a four-day weekend. Now, part of that is because I was preaching, and I knew I'd get in trouble if I didn't show up. Um, but the bigger part of that is we, we really found a home here at All-American Chapel. We love worshiping as a family here. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, but also, really excited to be here because of where we are in the story. Uh, for those that are just joining us or, or maybe have missed a couple of Sundays here or there, we've been going through uh, the book of Joshua. Uh, we've been talking uh, about the conquest into Canaan or, or getting to that point. And today... Today is the day that Israel finally gets to to, to lay hold of that promise. For over 400 years, Israel has been without of home. This is the land that generations have been waiting for. No more do they have to eat the manna in the quail in the wilderness. No more do they have to pack up and move around. No more are they refugees. No more do they have to bury their fathers and mothers in the desert. No more. God has promised them this land that they are now staring at. And this is Joshua chapter 6. Uh, if you want to turn and follow along, good, good luck. I've been hopped up on, on, on caffeine and sugar uh, for, for the last 24 hours, so I, I apologize in advance if you're not going to follow this. Joshua chapter 6, I'm not going to read it. I figure when you get bored with my preaching, you're going to start reading it anyway, right? But Joshua chapter 6, this is where we are. They are standing in front of the promised land. The enemies that lay before them are terrified of their God. The Israelites are primed. 
They are ready and they are excited. The Israelites have learned the painful lessons of relying on their own strength and their own power. Forty years in the wilderness did that to them. But now they are unified. Now they are totally devoted to their God. And they are anticipating his promises. They have been enslaved. They have been chased. They have wandered. But they have endured. They have crossed the Jordan River. Miraculously crossed the Jordan River. And now they stand ready. Now they face Jericho. The walled, fortified city of Jericho. If Israel was to take the promised land, if God was to make good on his promises, it would have to go through Jericho. Everything hinged on Jericho. Now, for those of you who have been to war, you know this truth, that the terrain and the geography matters. Even today, with our sophisticated drones, our artillery, our precision airstrikes, geography still matters to the people that are on the ground. Nine months ago, almost nine months ago, we came back from Afghanistan. And those of you who have ever been to Helmand Province, you know this fact. The terrain is flat and it is boring. In fact, it is so flat that even on night patrols, if you go to the very edge uh, of our GDA from 20 kilometers away, you can look back and you see C.L. Dwyer standing up like a big old bright Christmas tree in the middle of the desert. It is flat. Even though it is flat, though, one of the first things our commander and our engineer assets did when they got there was to get up in a helicopter so that they could see the geography from the air. Because even though predominantly it's flat, the washouts, the wadis, the little micro-terrain features, right, that the Taliban would have to use if they were going to get to us still existed. And we needed to see those. It mattered for our security, the geography and the terrain. Even more so, 3,500 years ago, when everything was fought on the ground, geography mattered. And from their camp, you can see by the big orange star there, from their camp at Gilgal, right after they had crossed the Jordan River, the Israelites could look up and they could see Jericho. They could see that Jericho stood at the front of the ascent to the hill country of Palestine. Jericho controlled the ascent to the mountains. And if the Israelites were to capture the hill country, they had to take Jericho. Everything relied on them taking Jericho. This would put them at the top of the hill country. This would give them the control of the central ridge. This would drive a wedge between uh, the armies in the south and the armies of the north. And this is where they needed to be. To fail to take Jericho would mean to leave a sizable military at your rear. And in fact, this, this, uh, this, this strategy was followed in World War I when the Britons took over Palestine. The exact same strategy. They would drive a wedge, they would take out the armies to the south, and then they would head to the more remote armies in the north, as you can see by the, the floating dot there. Thank you for that. That was a last-minute addition. I hope it helped. That's where they are. That's what's going on. Everything hinged on Jericho, the walled city of Jericho. This fortified city has served as the western gatekeeper to this land for a really, really long time. 9,000 B.C. Stay with me here on these numbers. In 9,000 B.C., Jericho became one of the earliest continuous settlements in the world. 
A thousand years later, these massive stone walls started to be built. Six thousand years later, the Canaanites finally moved in. And for the last 500 years, they have been building up their defenses. They have repelled attackers, and they have protected the front. Think about that. For 500 years, twice as long as America has been a nation, Jericho has stood and protected the land. So, how does an army with very little fighting experience, remember these guys just 40 years ago went from slaves to being nomads. The weapons that they had in their hands at this time came from the dead soldiers of the only two battles that they have ever fought as an army. It's kind of like putting a chaplain in a weapon system, right? So, so we've got these crow systems in our trucks, and, 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 and I could get behind there, um, and, and I could figure it out. I play Call of Duty. I, I, I pretty much got the joystick thing down, right? But you don't want me in that seat. You have untrained warriors with foreign weapons getting ready to take on the walled city of Jericho. The city that struck fear into invading armies for millennia. Contrast the Israelites with the battle-trained Canaanites. These were the real troops. They were the ones that were sent to protect the border, right? They were the ones that were the best of the best. Because if Canaan were to stop an invading army, they would have to go through Jericho. If Jericho could hold, then the rest of the land of Canaan would be saved as well. They were terrified of the God of the Israelites. Chapter 5 of, of Joshua tells us that when the spies went to Rahab, she told them. She says, everyone's hearts are melting in fear of your God. We are terrified of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, but Jericho could trust in herself. And not just the fighting force of Jericho, the trained warriors of Jericho, they could trust in the city itself. You see, Jericho sat on a hill. 70 feet above the plain. Jericho was the high ground. And if the Israelites managed to get past the barrage of arrows that they would have had to run through to get there, they were met with a, with a moat, 27 feet wide, 9 feet deep. No army was getting through that ditch, at least not in a force that mattered. But even had they done that, even had they done that, they would have had to deal with the walls. The wall of Jericho, 5 feet thick, 15 feet high, impossible, immovable, insurmountable. They had protected this city for a thousand, think about that, thousands of years. And Israel, with no siege engine, no training, you see Jericho, in their mind, wasn't going anywhere. The Jericho-like, Jericho, Jericho-inians, Jericho-inians, Jericho-like. The people of Jericho trusted in those walls. Israel wouldn't overtake them. Their military genius knew the only way that the city could possibly fall, could possibly fall, is if the Israelite army surrounded them in, in a siege and just waited them out. But here's the benefit of being in Jericho. It had a natural spring. Their water wasn't going anywhere. This was the benefit of the time of the year. The harvest had just come in. So their food stores were stocked. If Israel wanted a siege, Jericho could wait them out. 
the Canaanites were totally devoted to their city. In their mind, Jericho was going nowhere. The God of Israel struck fear into them, but even their God could not get past their wall. Put yourself in Joshua's shoes for a second. What would you do with those walls? Much more daunting than the Jordan River. They probably could have made their way across the river without God's help, right? So here's Joshua, standing in Gilgal, looking up into the mountains, seeing this fortified fortress. And i got to be honest, it, I, I believe his faith wavered at this point. I mean, mine has over much smaller obstacles. And I'm sure there's some of you that if I asked for a show of hands would raise your hand for the same thing today, right? I mean, much smaller things than a battle-trained army behind a walled fortress has wavered my faith in God. But isn't it awesome that God is merciful? Isn't it awesome that God knows us and is patient with us even when we lack faith? Isn't it neat that God still provides? So we see what God does. God sends him the commander of the armies of heaven. This is Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. The commander of the armies of heaven walks up to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal with his sword drawn. We know Joshua's faith was wavering because as he sees this man coming to him with a drawn sword, he asks him this question. He says, are you for us or are you for the Canaanites? And the commander says, neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. The Bible says that Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for this servant? Skipping on to Joshua chapter 6, 2, says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its kings and its fighting men. Now, we could debate uh, who this mysterious commander is. Uh, Chaplain Anderson and I, you could watch us go to blows over it. Um, it would be a great fight. I mean, he's like big and strong and scary, you know, but I'm old and stubborn. Um, who he is, though, isn't important. It's what he says that is. Before Israel even started their little ruck march around the city of Jericho, the commander of the Lord's army says, don't even worry about it because I've given it to you. It is already yours. He says, see, I have delivered it into your hands. As he's looking up at a completely fortified, completely prepared army. He says, don't worry about it. I have given it to you. That phrase, I have given it to you, I have delivered, maybe in, in, your, in, your, in your scripture. In the Hebrew, it represents a prophetic, a prophetic future. What this is, is basically saying a future event that has already happened. The commander of the army of God says, I have already given it to you. It is already yours. Don't worry about the walls. Don't worry about the moat. Don't worry about the fighting force. Don't worry about the arrows. It is yours. It is already yours. Victory was assured by the promise of an omnipotent God. And so Joshua, he's excited, right? Now, here we got the commander of the army of God. He's there, and he's like, hey, this is your city. It's all yours. And he's like, all right, so what's the plan? And this is the plan. This is what I love. In, in Joshua chapter 6, verse 3, here's the plan. The plan to get through this fortified city, this city that has stood the test of time. March around the city once with all of your armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear the sound and the long blast of a trumpet, have the whole army give a loud shout. 
and then the walled city will collapse and the army will go straight in. What do you think about that strategy, Joshua? Huh? Anyone ever worked in, 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 in a three shop? Anyone ever, ever, ever worked in plans, right? right? You're, you're the guys that come up with the majority of the plans, and, and this is how we're going to do things. How would that strategy have worked? Hey, let's put the chaplains out front, right? We're going to arm them with trumpets. They're going to be a marching band, right? And, and they're going to walk around this city, you know, and, 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 and it's going to strike fear in, into the Canaanites. And then I want you to do that. You'll put all your fighting men behind them, chaplains out front, chaplains lead the way, and, and all the army men behind them. And you're going to march around and march around and march around and march around until you get dizzy. And then the walls are going to fall down and I'm going to give you the victory. Pretty sure you phoned it in at that point, didn't you? That's it? That's what you got, God? But Joshua, to his credit, more so than mine, he is faithful. And he goes and he sells this plan to his army. Right? His untrained army with foreign weapons, he's like, we're going to go on a little walk. We're going to get our spur ride in. And they walked, and they walked, and they walked. Seven days they walked, and they walked, and they blow the trumpets. And lo and behold, the walls come down. The walls fall down. It's absolutely amazing. It, it boggles the mind. This had to be from God. God was making true on his promise. The walls fell down. Armies could not kick the walls down. Men could not kick the walls down. Natural disasters could not kick the walls down. God made the walls fall down. The battle was won, sort of. We're going to get to that in a second. But the city is conquered. Israel prevails. And this is the point of the sermon, right? Like, you've, you've heard this before. This is not a new sermon. Like, my kids in Sunday school, they've heard it since they've been. This is the point, right? God's going to knock down those walls in your life. You know, he's going he's gonna to defeat the cancer. He's going to defeat the broken relationships, the job searches, the deployments, the fear, the anxiety of doubt. Those things will all be broken before the all-powerful creator. And don't get me wrong, I believe that. I absolutely believe that. There is no battle in your life that God cannot win. There is nothing in your life that God cannot prevail over. But, as preachers, this is where we stop reading. This is usually where the story ends for us. Because what follows next is truly horrific. And a lot of times it doesn't fit into our nice little God box that we like to put him in. I want to draw your attention to what happens next. What happens as soon as the walls fall? The walls crumbling is not the end of the battle. Israel still has to deal with the battle-hardened army that is inside those walls. In Joshua 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 21, it says, They devoted the whole city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. This is why we stopped preaching in verse 20. This is horrible stuff. This is total destruction of a people. And it's hard to justify, but I think it's important that we look at it. Why did God order the destruction, the absolute destruction of Jericho? How can a loving God do that? Now, from a purely practical point of view, and, and, and just bear with me on this for a second, I get killing all the men, right? Because those are the guys that are going to lead the insurgency. If you don't wipe out the men, then they're going to raise up a, a, another fighting force, and they're going to destroy you from the inside. I can, I can understand killing the women. I, don't get me wrong. I, I love ladies, right? But, but it's strictly a religious sense, right? In strictly a religious sense, it makes perfect sense. Because the Israelite men would want to marry them. 
I mean, they've been looking at the same girls for 40 years, right, their whole life. And I'm sure these exotic Canaanites were hot, right? I, I'm sure that they would intermarry. And this is something God forbid. Because he knew if you married uh, the, 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 the foreign women with other gods, eventually you would want to be, um, you would want to learn about their gods. Eventually you would be part of that. I couldn't hear if you were laughing or not. Did that fly or not? Are the ladies offended? Where's my wife? Yeah, she's smiling. Okay. All right. But I get it. Right? God says you can't do that. You can't intermarry. Because your, their gods are going to influence you. And we see that much later on in this story when Israel doesn't obey God's laws. Then the, then the foreign gods come in and we see for the next 1,000, 1,500 years of their existence, it's trouble because of foreign gods. In all honesty, honesty I'm, I'm going to be honest, I can, I can see the, the need to wipe out the children too, right? I mean, every revenge movie that you've ever watched is because someone killed someone's family, right? Hello, my name is Indigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die, right? I, I didn't know if that was too dated or not. Greatest movie ever written, right? But I get it. I get the need to kill all those, but the innocent animals, right? I mean, where are their crazy cat videos going to come from? What are the kids going to get for Christmas? If you kill all the puff or Hanukkah, whatever, what are they going to get? Now, I can make fun of it, and don't judge me, because most of you are laughing, too. But honestly, what in the world, God? You want us to go in and destroy everything that breathes air. Well, I like to give God credit for being God. This is actually a fulfillment that he made way back, way back in Deuteronomy to Moses. It says, the Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods. He knew, he knew that if he left them alive, their gods would prevail and that their gods would corrupt a holy nation. Righteous judgment seems harsh because it is harsh. We must recognize, though, that at unique times, God has enacted his vengeance. God's vengeance, not ours. He has enacted his will, not ours. So that his judgment comes to pass. It may happen through an army that we, that we see here. It may happen through just his divine, um, his divine will, as we see in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. But you see, God would not, could not allow sin to exist in his holy land. It's one of his attributes. It's one of the things that God cannot change about himself. Sin and holiness do not go hand in hand. Sin and holiness cannot exist in the same place. This was true for God's chosen people in the promised land, and it is still true today. For us. His holy people and his temple. The judgment was harsh because of the depravity of the land. And that should stand as a fierce and stark reminder to our culture today. And why maybe we should take some things a little bit more seriously. While a little more in line with what God teaches. That's a little soapbox of mine. I'll get off of it and get back to the sermon. But to better understand why God had to wipe out the Canaanites, you've got to understand their culture. You've got to understand their religion. At the center of the heart uh, uh, of the Canaanite re religion was, was sex in all of its perversions. The land was polluted with immorality. 
They were hopelessly lost. Several times in the Old Testament, we, re- we read about him. In Leviticus chapter 18, God is speaking. He says, don't give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of the Lord your God. We're going to censor verses 21 through 23 because there's kids in the audience, but I encourage you to read through that on your own to see how bad this place was. Pick it back up in 24. It says, do not defile yourself in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. defiled. He says, these are the things that are going to lead you astray. Moloch, it's this God that they worshiped, right? And, and, and this is the censored part. They would build a bronze idol, right, in, 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 in a figure of this Moloch God. And they would light it on fire. And bronze, when it gets hot, it glows. And then they would take their firstborn, and they would just throw it on the, al- on the altar. That's what they were doing. They were, they were sacrificing their firstborn on the altar of Moloch. And that's the censored version. These guys were not innocent. The Canaanites were not innocent victims. Neither are we. The people that lived in Canaan were not ignorant of the God of Israel. Many times we get that impression that God ordered the Israelites to swoop in and destroy innocent people. They were neither innocent nor ignorant. They had heard about the God of Israel, but they had rejected him. When the two spies went to scout out the, 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 the promised land, and Rahab hid them in her house, she told them in, in Joshua chapter 2, that we're in fear of you. We're scared. We've seen what your God can do. We're terrified of him. She said, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. They had heard about God, but they had rejected him. Consequently, their entire society acted in a sinful way. In Romans, the Apostle Paul talks about this this kind of people or this kind of groupthink. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became foolish. The foolish city of Jericho that had rejected the truth of God. Rahab, though. Rahab. She heard. She was afraid. But she believed. And she was saved. Guys, that's the point of this chapter. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 25, it says, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day amidst all the destruction, all the horrible atrocities, the terrible loss of life. There stands this bright and beautiful moment, the salvation of Rahab. God had forgiven her past. Not just the prostitute stuff, but she too would have worshipped the Canaanite gods. She too would have worshipped the god Moloch, and all that is entailed in that. But God forgave her regardless of her past and saved her by her faith in him. Even in the New Testament, we're still reading about Rahab. In the book of Hebrews, in the the Faith Hall of Fame, Hebrews chapter 13, it mentions all these great people of faith. And right there in the middle, Rahab the prostitute. God saved her because of her faith in that That is the message of this chapter. God can most certainly knock down the walls in your life. He has proven that over and over and over again. But more importantly, 
most importantly, he has knocked down that wall of sin and death. Like Rahab, no matter what we've done, we do not have to suffer the fate of our sins. The Bible says, for we have all sinned and fallen short. We are all sinners in a holy land. And this is a pure picture of what God did by sending Jesus to die for our sins. You see, we are no different as a people than the Canaanites. Now, we may not be caught up in all the moral detestability, but we all live in sin. The sin that separates us from a holy God. The sin that God himself says made us enemies of him. He could not change the fact, he cannot change the fact that holiness cannot coexist with sinfulness. But he so greatly desires a relationship with each and every one of us that he was going to make a way that we didn't have to bear the consequence of our sin anymore. He wouldn't leave us there, his children. And so he sent his son to be that willing sacrifice. Sacrificing your kids to God doesn't do it, right? That's not right. But a perfect, willing sacrifice would work. The sacrifice that would atone for our sin. The sacrifice that would take our sin upon himself. That would get it away from us. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, east is from the west, as far as the north is from the south. That's how far away our sin is from us. Jesus willingly took that sin away so that we could stand before a righteous and holy God. Not by our works, but by his. And he asks, all he asks, is that we have the faith that what he has done, what he will do, to provide our salvation, that once we hear of this awesome God, that we believe that he is the only way that we will be saved, and that we realize, confess, and repent our sins, that we're baptized into him, and that we live a life worthy of that holy calling. Just as Rahab and the Canaanites were provided a choice to be saved, so are we. And if you have not made that choice, I ask you, I, I plead, decide. Decide who you're going to serve. Joshua later tells this to his people as he's getting up at the very end of this book. He is looking over the conquered land, over the conquest. And he gets all the people of Israel together. And he says this, he says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. That is my encouragement to you. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You must make a choice. I want to encourage you. We, we do, uh, December 2nd, we've, we've, uh, we've got this baptism service. Um, we, we've, we've got uh, everything in place. We've got chaplains in the back that are there waiting to, to hear your confession. We're, we're, we've got, that's the wrong way to say that. It's very Catholic. We have, we have chaplains in the back that are, that are willing to, to listen to you make that decision, right? They want to know. And if you go back today uh, after this um, and you've decided that, you know what, I've got to make a choice. One, one is either follow the gods that the Canaanites followed, and that didn't work out so well. And we know that in our life, right? When we do things our way, it just doesn't work out so well. Or follow the God that has saved so many. We have to make that choice. So I encourage you to go back to, that, to, the, to, the, to the welcome table there 
talk with the chaplain. December 2nd, we've got an awesome opportunity for you to, to publicly declare that through baptism. If you have made that choice, but you didn't wipe out everything in your life that represents your old life. Hebrews 12 says to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that's so easily entangled. Today is your time to say no more. No more does this have to be in my life. Do so today. You must make a choice. And I encourage you to make a choice to be totally devoted to our God. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, you are a great and mighty God. And Lord, I don't understand your ways. I, I, I see what you've done in history, and, and all I can say is that I know in the end that you win. You win every time because you are right, and you are pure, and you are holy. And Lord, we thank you for giving us that opportunity. While we were enemies, you still gave us that opportunity to be reunited with you. We couldn't stand before you based on what we've done, but we know that you provided that path for us through your son. And Lord, I just pray that you be with us today as we make those choices to serve the God that we have served before, to allow sin to continue in our life, or to say today, no more, no more. We are going to follow the holy God, the true God. Lord, help us to make that decision. We pray this all in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. That was this week's All-American Chapel Protestant Service podcast. Please tune in for next week's podcast.